Welcome to Leader Talks with Anne-Marie Pham, where I sit down with thought leaders across Canada to discuss the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. This podcast aims to create awareness, showcase a variety of perspectives, and inspire courage for all of us to create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces and communities for all. I am your host, Anne-Marie Pham, CEO of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. As CCDI celebrates its 10-year anniversary in 2023, we welcome you to today's episode of Leader Talks Season 2. Hello everyone and welcome to the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion's Leader Talks. Today we are so honoured to have with us Katie Ward, who is the Commissioner and Chief Administrative Officer for the Pay Equity Commission of Ontario. And we thought, you know, Commissioner Ward would be a wonderful guest for us to celebrate International Women's Day. So let me introduce you to Commissioner Ward. In 2020, Katie Ward will assume this leadership position and she comes as a seasoned executive whose career has been characterized by successful collaboration across public, private, and not-for-profit organizations to design and deliver inclusive economic growth strategy. And before joining the Pay Equity Commission in 2020, Commissioner Ward worked on implementing aspects of the federal government's feminist international assistance policy, where she increased women's participation in international trade, the labor market, as well as equitable participation of men and women in their local economy. And Commissioner Ward has a lot of expertise, and that expertise has really taken her around the world. She's worked with legislators to establish programs and legislation that support women-led micro and small enterprises. She is the recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. And she was recognized for her work contributing to significant economic improvement in various Canadian cities. And most recently, Commissioner Ward's Level the Playing Field, sorry, Level the Paying Field (laughs) video and podcast series explored issues related to economics, equity, women, work, and money. And she was awarded the Gold Quilt Award of Merit for Excellence in Government Communications. So obviously, this is a wonderful biography, a huge and diverse repertoire of expertise and experience. Welcome to our podcast, Katie. We're so happy to have you here today with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity to connect and to to speak with your audience on this special time of year, International Women's Day. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on your many accomplishments. So I'd like to start our podcast by getting to know our guests a little bit more and in their own words. Kitty, what keeps you so engaged and committed in your role as commissioner and in your past roles supporting women and, you know, fighting for equity? That's a great question. You know, a lot of my work has focused on the industry that I focus on, I should start with, is economic development. And economic development is a broad industry that supports all kinds of growth in the community so citizens can self-actualize and live the life that they want to live. 
And through that work, it became apparent to me that in order for societies, communities, cities, and whatever, you know, size of human organization we're looking at, in order for it to flourish, we need to have equality. We need to have engagement of all genders. And that's intersectional as well in order for a community to really thrive and prosper. So, you know, what keeps me engaged is knowing that when we work to achieve this, we're really working to shift and create at new norms in society where equity is the standard or equality is the standard and where we can look at and see that we appreciate all the contributions being made, even though they might be different by different individuals, all are being appreciated and understood that they're contributing to a greater whole that is the, the economic prosperity and growth of the municipality. That's great. Thank you so much for that. And you're right, you know, it's the vision, right? The economic growth mm-hmm. and prosperity. And we want to make sure that everybody has that equal access to contribute to that growth and that there are, you know, no barriers in the way of them achieving that. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, Ontario is a bit of a pathfinder when it comes to pay equity legislation. In fact, Ontario's Pay equity legislation was the first of its kind when it was introduced in 1987 mm-hmm. to address the, those wage disparities between men and women. So, Katie, can you tell us a little bit more about where are we at? Like, what's changed since 1987? Great question. You know, I mentioned in my first answer that so much what drives me is making sure that in societies and in cultures that we value work um, equally, even if it's different. And it has a sort of different contribution that is valued equitably. And that's exactly what the Pay Equity Act did. It said, you know, historically, and we I'll talk a little bit about this, but historically, men and women have done different work for many reasons. Some of them is just legislative. Men and women were legislated to do different work. But that work over time was valued differently. And in almost all cases, work done by women was undervalued because it was done by women and because it was seen as, you know, domestic and the extension of the home. So it was undervalued in the paid labor market. So when the Pay Equity Act came into force, it really came to redress this issue, saying there's a systemic issue with the way that we understand women and work and how we value and compensate that work. So, you know, the act came, took about 20 years, grassroots advocacy, and it was hotly debated in the legislature, but it was eventually passed in 1987, as you mentioned. And so, you know, the kind of impetus or what spawned this is, you know, at the end of the 19th century industrial revolution, we saw primarily unmarried women enter the paid labor market because before then, the, I guess, economic unit was really the home, the farm. It was an agricultural society. And as we became more industrial, women and men started going into the paid labor market, but it was mostly unmarried women because it wasn't appropriate for married women to go into the labor market. And so there's a shift happening in this labor market. And it's worth noting too, that even as unmarried women entered the labor market, there were laws deciding what types of jobs women could do and what types of jobs they couldn't do. So we started to, you know, see ruffles, you know, I'm going to skip a couple of, of decades because we don't have time on the podcast. But, you know, at the end of the First World War, so now, you know, we've had an industrial labor force for maybe 100 years, governments and provinces start to address minimum wages for women. So it took that long to have the conversation just about minimum wages for women. And, you know, in 1918, Manitoba and British Columbia passed minimum wage laws to protect women. But it wasn't until the 1920s that Quebec, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and Ontario actually followed suit and started addressing 
minimum wage for women. Again, it was mostly, though, in mainly industrial occupations. And a lot of women were not clustered in those occupations, so they still were not protected by, by minimum wage laws. A couple of decades later, fast forward to World War II, you have now the entry of married women into the paid workforce. And, you know, this was a result of the men going off to war. And we know there's been lots of documentaries about this, women coming into the factories, taking on all kinds of roles and coming into the workforce, again, underpaid because it was wartime and there was austerity. But the government did create government-run and own daycares to allow women to work. And also, you know, the responsibilities of motherhood were sort of subsidized and taken care of by the state during that time. Then, of course, you know, men come back from war and women are sort of forced out of the labor market, but their attitudes are changing about work and the types of things they want to do and the type of compensation they want. So it wasn't until 1951, actually, that the concept of equal pay for women found its way into legislation. And it took another 20 years. So now we're into the 70s for women workers in Canada to be covered by equal pay laws. And equal pay for equal work, you know, basically means that if you have two people doing on a line, let's say processing widgets, simple example, they need to be paid the same if they're doing the same work. But the concept started to shift from getting paid equally, like equal pay for equal work to equal pay for work of equal value. Because recognizing that women were clustered intentionally by legislation into certain types of work. And as I said at the beginning, that work was undervalued because it was women's work. So Ontario was the first province, actually first legislation globally to pass a pay equity act um, that covered both private and public sectors. And it took the other provinces a while to catch up. So just to give you a little bit of landscape, giving you this background so I can talk about where we're at now, but pay equity is a standalone statute in Ontario and Quebec, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island have pay equity for the public sector, but not private. And Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia actually have no legislation on pay equity, but address discrimination through human rights. So it's taken us some time, you know, just to get to the point where we've recognized almost, you know, a century and a half of the way that women's work have been undervalued. And so, you know, progress has been made in closing the gap. So it took over just over 20 years to narrow the average hourly wage gap by 8%. So in 1998, it was 19% and say it's 11%. And this is the average hourly wage gap. You can look at the average annual wage gap as well, but we tend to work with the average annual wage gap when we talk about the gender wage gap. So we have seen progress happening, albeit slowly. It's taken 20 years to close the gap 8%, and we have 11% to go. So, you know, we're we're constantly analyzing and understanding again because the 11% is an industry average. So we're trying to figure out which industries have the biggest gap, the, the narrowest gap, and how we can make changes on it in other aspects uh, that affect the gender wage gap in order to close it. Wow. Thank you so much, Kitty, for this background. You know, it reminds me of this saying that you can't fix what you don't know. And you're really educating us about, you know, the history, right, of the undervaluation of women's work and the systemic issues that have been happening ever since. And the laws oftentimes 
almost every time are built based on changes that we see in societies, our values, our norms, and our expectations. And exactly, you know, we are at the point right now where we recognize we need to be equitable, we need to be inclusive, we need to do the right thing. And it's so interesting to see that in Ontario, you're still trying to narrow this gap, but there are still provinces in our country that still don't have that legislation at all. So, wow. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, this was sort of a groundbreaking tool when Ontario led with it. It's now, you know, over 35 years old. So we have to take it for what it was in 1987, but it's still been one effective tool to close the gender wage gap. But you're absolutely right in pointing out that there are other provinces, even across Canada, that haven't addressed this with legislation. Newfoundland just announced that it's going, I think they have even already introduced first draft of a pay equity act. And there's conversations about introducing these acts. But some legislators just look to human rights to correct the issue. But we know we've done a ton of research at our office. We know that where there is legislation in place, the gender wage gap is closing at a much quicker pace. Mm. Yeah. So very targeted, specific legislation makes a difference. That's really good. Yeah. So can you tell us, you know, what is the economic value proposition of gender diversity and any of its macro or microeconomic impacts? Yes, great question, because, you know, oftentimes if you we should be closing the gender wage gap or closing gender gaps in general in terms of equity and inequities, because it's the moral thing to do. It's the socially responsible Mm -hmm. thing to do. Uh, Sometimes the economic argument, though, helps to get investors or legislators' attention. So, you know, we often do this type of research and understand that, you know, the impacts of improving gender diversity, number one, um, eliminating pay inequity and achieving more distribution of unpaid care work. That's another big issue we could maybe touch on. The impacts of those are large and measurable. And so, you know, companies we know with gender diversity on executive teams, are 25% more likely to experience above average profitability than their peer companies without it. So, and this is related to the, this idea, right? We, I think we're all comfortable with the notion and we understand the notion that the broader set of experience and perspectives you bring to the table leads to better conversation and decision-making. And that's really what diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about, is, you know, on the gender lens and also intersectionally, is that you're inviting other perspectives to the table, which which has an impact on the bottom line because you'll have more healthy conversations and probably better solutions. You know, there's a differential on this also that, you know, there's a likelihood of outperformance between the most and the least gender diverse companies is 48%. So if you put these two companies, one super has gender diversity built in, another does not, on the performance metric, you'll see a 48% differential, which is quite impressive just by bringing gender diversity, intersectional gender diversity to the workplace. On pay equity, you know, this is very measurable. <laughs> RBC has argued that Canada could add a hundred billion to its annual GDP by supporting women's participation in the workplace. And so this is a couple of things. This is increased participation of women over time contributing to productivity and growth. Another part of this would be, you know, closing the gender wage gap. So research found that narrowing the gender wage gap could add between 12 and 28 trillion to the global GDP. This is the global number here. And some private 
So I just want to hit on two points on this because I think it's important to note that just bringing more women into the workplace will make a significant economic impact to growth and productivity. Then paying them equitably and what they're worth will have an, another significant impact on GDP and money that goes into the economy. And this is money that women have, families have, couples have to invest in themselves, in the economy, in their future. And it's taxable income that goes back into taxes that then make service provision and infrastructure better. So there's sort of a virtuous cycle of bringing women into the economy and paying them equitably. And, you know, an argument we often hear is that private sector companies see this as a cost to their bottom line and they resist it. And, you know, this is a misconception based on sort of zero sum thinking number one and really not understanding that diverse and high performing cultures can thrive and can innovate in ways that others do not. Right. And actually, you know, everything that you shared makes so much sense for me because it's not just the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for your business, for your organization, for, you know, the economics of this country, right? And the future of this country. And when we think about, you know, our aging population in Canada, and when you think about, you know, all of the conversations that employers have about concerns about not finding, you know, the right person for the job, uh, we uh-huh. have a talent pool right here in Canada, exactly. right? That is underpaid, that is undervalued. And we really not leveraging and, and, and capitalizing, optimizing the resources that we have here. So we need to really unpack this and I think really reflect on what can I do, you know, as an employer, as a supervisor, as a hiring manager to help close this pay gap, to provide equitable opportunity for all people. And so maybe that would be my next question to you, Katie, is based on your experience, what do workplaces need to do to close the pay gap? And can you help us by sharing concrete solutions and practical examples? Because we've got a lot of employers in our network at CCDI, and I know that they'd love to hear some examples of what they can do. Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate that because it's nice for you know, employers and managers and the community that's invested in this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion to have ways of actually putting it into action. So we are happy to share with you some tools and, and insights that we, we have on this. A couple of things, you know, our office, the Pay Equity Office of Ontario, actually develops tools to support employers in identifying and closing gender wage gaps or wage gaps in general. So I would encourage, you know, we can give you some links that you can maybe put in your show notes to share because we recently launched a pay equity solution for small business, which is a free downloadable do-it-yourself toolkit that guides employers, HR professionals, or managers through the seven steps to actually complete a pay equity analysis. And I think this is just you know where we need to start. So the Pay Equity Act legislates that companies need to have a pay equity plan. And it's sort of a, it's proactive in that we believe that employers will do it because the law exists. That's not always the case. Not every employer has a pay equity plan and we have the statutory authority to go and audit companies to see this. But let's hope it doesn't get to that. You can go download this tool and do the analysis. And I would say just a very practical step is make a commitment if you haven't done a pay equity analysis to do it. It's the law, but it's also 
if you're really committed to equity in the workplace, sit down and go through the process. This toolkit walks you through all the steps. You just simply enter the necessary information and it completes the calculation for you. There's short explanatory videos. So all of that is there um, so you can download and, and walk through that. You know, another thing, we recently launched, as you mentioned in my bio, a series called Level the Paying Field. A little bit of a play yeah. on the word playing field. <laughs> I love it. I was thinking, yeah. thank you. I was thinking, you know, there's never, you hear that analogy often, let's level the playing fields for women or racialized or intersexual identities. And, you know, there's never would be a scenario where you would see an uneven playing field. Like you would never go to see like soccer or football or hockey and see that the field or the the ice pad is is uneven. Like it just wouldn't happen. So how did it happen in society, right? It got me thinking and in the sort of what we do as a pay equity act is closing gender wage gaps. But it's a great series, Level the Paying Field. There's six episodes in the first one with, a, again, just more information. And we talk to, to, to specialists around the world. And we do a really good one. Is, I think it's episode two on myth busting, where we attack five myths of the gender wage gap and then some actual items on top of it. Because there's things big questions here. You know, like the gender wage gap is linked to maternity leave. The fact that we believe that it's primarily women that should take, you know, we need to switch the language to parental leave and have employers encourage fathers, or if it's um, a homosexual relationship, then both partners taking parental leave. So so both have an opportunity to, to have that experience, but not one loses out on career growth. Also, you know, bigger structural issue is attacking the notion or deconstructing the notion that primarily women should lead unpaid care in the home. Um, this is a big social issue, but employers can talk to their employees about the care responsibilities that they have and help make accommodations and support them so they're able to work, so they're able to contribute to their career development. Those are big ones. I mean, those are big social issues that we have to have broader conversations about shifting gender norms or cultural expectations or even, you know, religious expectations that are sort of constructed around women's roles. But there's very practical steps. Just start with doing a pay equity analysis in your workplace. Start with talking to your employees who might be in going off on parental leave and, and discuss sharing it with their spouse and discuss what their homework situation is and how you can support what they need in order to contribute in the workplace. That's great. Thank you so much, Kitty. Wow, a great tool, the pay equity analysis tool. That's something I'm going to have to keep in mind for many of the employers that we work with and also listening to, you know, leveling the paying field, the podcast series that you have and the practical tools there. That's fantastic. Now, you know, at CCDI, our vision is to build an inclusive Canada. And we try to do that by working primarily with employers, with workplaces of all sectors in all industries, but also in post-secondary schools and in various communities. For you, Commissioner Ward, what is your vision for an inclusive Canada? Like what role can we each play personally to make it a little bit better for the people around us? That's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, it's great that you challenge your guests to answer this and to continue to think about it. Because I think that, you know, the social and economic consequences of inequality are profound and far reaching. Like that's just a, a place we need to stop and number one, recognize. 
you know, there's a growing sense of unfairness, precarity in work, perceived loss of identity and dignity because of inequality, a weakening social fabric, eroding trust in institutions, you know, disenchantment with political processes, and a, a sort of erosion of this traditional idea of the social contract we had. So to me, there's such a massive impetus to answer this question and to figure out how did we get here, which is partly why at the beginning I went back to the this question of history, like, well, the Industrial Revolution, like, this is where it started. Because I think we have to go back and deconstruct some of these norms to figure out how did we create the system of inequality so we could start with something with something new. You know, when I think about diversity, equity, inclusion, I know these these terms are thrown around a lot. When I think about diversity and what that means in Canada is, you know, diversity is a matter of makeup and composition. We have one of the most diverse cultures. We've used the word melting pot. We've used the words mosaic. All of these things to rep- recognize that. I guess when you look at demographics, you see a lot of difference, right? And that's the makeup and composition. But inclusion is much more than that. It's a matter of belief and behavior. So when you just putting together people who might seemingly on the surface, you know, look different, is not necessarily going to achieve. The idea of inclusion, because we have to account for the fact that there are different perspectives, different belief systems, different experiences, different ways of engaging and perceiving the world. And when we have true inclusion, we actually tap into number one from a you know corporate point of view, the talent that's activating that. We have this idea that talent and ideas come from a certain type of person, a sort of generic model of what that looks like. Talent and innovation is in every individual. It's gender neutral. It's racial neutral. It's, you know, sexual orientation neutral. It just exists. And so when we get to inclusion, yeah, to me, that be- I believe that that just looks like understanding that we are surrounded by so much talent and creativity and innovation. And we have to be open to receive that and open to letting that shape and form how we evolve culturally and economically and socially. That is fantastic. And, you know, it makes me think about, you know, inclusion and diversity and equity. At the end of the day, the outcome is belonging, right? Creating everything, the systems, the policies, the practices, but the day-to-day interactions with people, our colleagues, our clients, our partners in such a way that people feel that they can bring their whole self to work, that they feel safe, that people appreciate and acknowledge the similarities and the differences that we each have. And people are well, they're thriving in whatever ecosystem they're in. And I think this is what we are trying to achieve here, you know, with the great work that you do with the commission, the work that we do at CCDI is we look at those areas where we need to address those barriers so that people can remove those barriers, institutions can remove those barriers and find solutions towards true inclusion. So on that note, Commissioner Katie Ward, thank you so much for joining CCDI and the Leader Talks podcast. I think that your thoughts, your ideas were very wise and hopefully gave our listeners a lot of things to think about and things that they can take away with them to create more equity and inclusion for all. Once again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Leader Talk Season 2. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. 
to stay up to date with Leader Talks or to find and listen to previous episodes, please visit ccdi.ca slash podcast. <music>